FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about solar flares, smell, and drugs. In addition, Adam Goldstein will discuss Apple scripting, and Itsumari Harada will discuss lactoferrin. Also, we'll find out why Mars is so red. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that means me, Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty good, pretty good. So, uh, how's the weather? Uh, the weather's uh, actually quite amazing. I was walking around today and I was feeling sorry for all those people uh, traipsing through the Midwest there, uh, getting their asses uh, frozen off. Oh, so you didn't feel the storm? Uh, and, well, not really much of it. Oh, I'm talking about the solar storm, of course. <laughs> yeah, I normally uh, reflect on the uh, solar particles that are impacting me <laughs> daily, yeah. Well, it, it turned out just uh, this Monday there was a huge flare-up from one of the sunspots. Okay. And it looks like it should have hit us by uh, early this morning on Wednesday. I thought something was a little different. I was feeling highly energized, so I guess that must have been it. Yeah, but uh, for those lucky people out there, if it actually uh, observed enough, there should have been an aurora that corresponded to this solar storm. Right. Whenever, I guess, the solar particles, they impact uh, the magnetic field, they uh, emit uh, highly uh, charged uh, ions and, I guess, uh, light as well, right? Yeah. So, in- intriguing. So, But, of course, you have to be up in the north, uh, northern regions, right, to see that. True. But if it's a really severe one, sometimes people in Texas or even down in the equator can actually see it. Oh, wow. But usually, you know, people in Minnesota... Okay. Are able to see it. That's that's absolutely fascinating. I was watching a program the other day where they're showing, I guess, the changing magnetic fields of the Earth, and uh, eventually, I guess, there'll be a lot of, I guess, north and south poles. So pretty much, you could see these types of things anywhere. Hmm. I'm just wondering what happens, like, in that moment where it switches, like, there's no magnetic field for a few moments, and then, like, the solar wind just starts hitting us. <laughs> that would be kind of cool, huh? It's the call before the storm. It's yeah. a lot, you know, is this sort of uh, solar flare going to be common in the next couple of days, or do they know uh, if these solar flare-ups are going to continue to occur? Well, actually, it turns out. We're we're at the, at the near minimum for uh, the uh, 11-year cycle of the uh, solar storms. Oh, okay. So uh, I guess this is actually something of an unusual occurrence. This is actually something of an unusual occurrence. Right. 
So if anyone wants to find out more about solar flares and uh, stuff like that, go to space.com. Okay, well, I guess continuing our uh, ventures into the uh, outer regions, more news from Titan. From Titan? You know, I heard it was just one big, giant creme brulee. <laughs> and if you're going to have a creme brulee planet, wouldn't you want to name it Titan? Of course. I think it, it has just that ring of uh, erudition. <laughs> the big news, of course, is that the Huygens probe has landed on Titan. and uh, Indeed. And I guess has uh, confirmed what everyone once believed, that Titan is, of course, creme brulee. <laughs> At least Among the surface things, yeah. feels like it. Yeah, well, I guess that's what happened when it was stuck its probe into the uh, the surface, right? Right. After that crusty layer, and then deep down was more mm-hmm. soft. Well, God must be planning a feast for us out there. I'm I'm wondering what's on Pluto. Is that like the planet of uh, meringue? How about Uranus? <laughs> that could be a dirty one. You know? Yeah, I think like blood parasites or something there. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but uh, it turns out, though, that uh, I guess Huygens has sent back a, a number of really interesting images. I guess once it was descending, uh, it showed what looked like uh, lakes of ethane and methane, which uh, a lot of researchers had believed might exist. And it showed sort of crevasses where these lakes might be flowing in rivers and things mm-hmm. like that. Quite fascinating. And clouds, of course, as it was descending, which might, of course, be these methane and ethane clouds as well. Right. So it was uh, really fascinating, and it looks like it's a very uh, orange world, littered with all these sorts of uh, interesting rocks and things like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, very fascinating. Wow. I'm planning my next vacation already. Uh, I thought you were going to go off to uh, Saturn. Saturn? To uh, see the rings. There are too many rings there. I was getting <laughs> confused. I'm not, I'm not sure which one rules them all, though. <laughs> see, I think it's just become overbuilt, right? And yeah. now all the tourists are going there. Yeah. It's overrated. Yeah. <laughs> really fascinating stuff, though, and this is actually quite fascinating because it's, it marks sort of a uh, very big international effort to actually monitor all the types of things that were going on with it. So not just the European Space Agency, but uh, NASA and other organizations have been involved as well. Cool. Uh, and, of course, uh, this will be news, I guess, throughout the week as uh, images and such come in. But uh, if you want to find out more, there's a, a nice report uh, online at nature.com. Bon appétit. So how's your piriform cortex? Uh, it's uh, very wrinkly and uh, somewhat underused, I think. Underused? So yeah. you can't smell very well. No, I think uh, it's been stuffed up quite a bit since... Oh, yeah. that's too bad. I haven't been able to smell much lately, especially success. <laughs> <laughs> and it smells green, right? <laughs> yeah, something like that. I'd rather be smelling revenge, but you know. <laughs> but uh, Just a warning out there to all those people <laughs> on my list. <laughs> Charles is dangerous, I <laughs> If you have not met him. Yeah, you know, uh, everyone's afraid of a 98-pound winkling, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Fearsome. Absolutely fearsome, I am. He can even open the door sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes. (laughs) It's only one of those automatic ones. So it turns out there's a uh, group here at Berkeley led by Noam Sobel in the um, Department of Psychology, uh-huh. and they've been investigating how um, your brain sensitizes your nose for smelling. Okay. And so it turns out this region called the uh, piriform cortex is a, involved in that process. So this is uh, once you've already smelled something, uh, your ability to pick it up uh, even at lower concentrations, that kind of thing. Right. So it turns out most of the time your, your brain is processing all these uh, odors mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, 
but we're not especially uh, going to be sensitive until it reaches a certain threshold or unless we've been told to expect an odor in our path. So what they did was they took these students, they put them through the fMRI machines, the functional magnetic resonance imaging machines they have here at Berkeley, mm-hmm. and they showed that these regions of the brain actually light up when you're anticipating for a particular smell. Okay, so they, they told them, oh, you're going to be uh, smelling uh, chamomile or something like that. Right. And then they were able to pick it up a little better. Yeah. Huh. Uh, that's quite fascinating, actually. Uh, I, I, I think I'd read, of course, that you know a lot of uh, human smell is, of course, somewhat uh, uh, keyed, I guess, to the sort of anticipatory... Um, so like salivation, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, what, what what practical purpose does this really have in the real world? I mean, how many times are you going to know what sort of smell you're... Uh... Since we're not overly sensitized most of the time, that means we won't be overwhelmed by, you know, a little bit of uh, foul or, you know, fair odor mm. unless it's really bad. So, normally we're not going to complain too much <clears throat> about a bathroom unless it's really, really bad. Oh, thank God. You should see the places I live. So. <laughs> So, uh, but it's like if you if you need to pick out, say, the smell in in sort of the odor right crowd, then it helps. We can focus ourselves to <laughs> actually pick it up. Ah, very good. This is kind of like a lot of other modalities. Sometimes you just don't notice the things unless you're you're focusing your attention on it. Right. So this was interesting <clears throat> work, and it's actually um, one of the recent UC Berkeley press releases. <laughs> Okay, Frank, so uh, do you have a lot of addictions? Um, let's see, water, air, sugar, salt, and a little fat. Those are all pretty good, I think. Yeah, sleep uh, too. Even one of my more favorite ones. I think air you can kind of do without for a while, though. Must be the oxygen, huh? <laughs> Researchers have uh, been trying to, I guess, help people uh, overcome their addictions. Uh-huh. And, of course, especially in the new year, that's a big big deal. But uh, it's kind of difficult, especially for very uh, addictive compounds like, uh, you know, alcohol or, or even some, uh, some higher... Uh, high, high, some more highly addictive drugs. Like Krispy Kreme. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the worst ones, actually. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> How many did you have this time? I don't know, but like the, uh, <laughs> the fat is still floating around my bloodstream. So. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, researchers have known, actually, that a uh, naturally curdling hallucinogen, which was actually popular in the 1960s, uh, can actually help alleviate uh, a lot of the addictions. Wow, using one poison to fight another poison, huh? <laughs> it's, you know, it's tit for tat, I guess, is the idea. Uh, so the, the drug is ibogaine. And it's extracted from the root bark of a shrub, which is uh, considered sacred in some uh, African tribes. But for years, doctors have actually been using this drug to actually cure uh, a lot of uh, addictions. Uh, But it was not known really uh, if uh, this drug actually had any curative effect or was more of a placebo. Right. So researchers at the University of California at San Francisco, led by neurobiologist Dorit Ron and Patricia Janik, uh, tested the compound's effects in rats. Mm -hmm. And they injected, of course, some of the compounds in rats that had been um, trained to like alcohol quite a bit. Right. And what they found out was that uh, just one treatment of this ibogaine uh, stopped their addiction to alcohol. Wow. Uh, It's uh, really quite amazing, yeah. In fact, and it turns out what it might be is that it uh, alters a part of the brain called the ventral tegmental area, Mm -hmm. which is uh, linked to uh, a lot of pleasurable responses. Okay. And uh, the way you might do this by elevating levels of a particular molecule called GDNF, which uh, might be necessary for the survival of dopamine-producing neurons. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's uh, quite fascinating. So uh, they might have it's a... It's like resetting your brain a little bit. Huh? In a way, yeah. Uh, but of course, uh, side effects appear to be at very high dosages, uh, you know, hallucinations and seizures. There's nothing wrong with that. No, I mean... <laughs> Reality is kind of polluted anyways. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. The imagination in my mind might be even worse. <laughs> Uh, but uh, fascinating stuff, and uh, I guess if this uh, goes through, I guess all the trials and things like that, uh, it might be a novel therapy. 
And uh, if anyone's interested in this, they can take a look. It's in the recent edition of the Journal of Neuroscience. Excellent. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science this week. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Dr. Esamori Harada joins us to talk about lactoferrin. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. Milk. It does the body good, it's good for your bones, and it's probably more important for infants than you might think. And what exactly is it that makes it so wholesome? Well, one of the critical compounds in milk is lactoferrin, and joining us today is a very special guest all the way from Japan, uh, Dr. Etsumori Harada, who's telling about his research with lactoferrin. Professor Harada, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox. So first of all, could you tell us what exactly is lactoferrin? I introduce you uh, some uh, evidence of lactoferrin. So the lactoferrin is secreted from uh, mother milk, especially uh, human, horse, and mice. And what is the function? Of lactoferrin in humans? Until uh, uh, recently, uh, lactoferrin has uh, many kinds of uh, function, especially uh, transport of uh, iron, proliferation of uh, cells, or uh, antibacterial effect. Some uh, investigators reported uh, anti-allergy or anti-inflammatory function. Recently, our laboratory reported a uh, novel function. These lactoferrin are transported from uh, lumen to uh, circulation from uh, epithelial cell of intestine. After that, uh, lactoferrin containing in uh, peripheral circulation transported into a uh, cerebrospinal fluid. So after that, lactoferrin transported into a cerebrospinal fluid has uh, two main functions. One is a uh, suppressed effect and anti-stress function. It was recently identified that lactoferrin is in also in the, the cow's milk, also similar to the human mm. lactoferrin. Mm. What are the differences and how come it's mm. difficult to get it just mm. from the cow's milk. Lactoferrin concentration in milk is uh, much higher in uh, human than the other animal. Uh, especially uh, cow's milk uh, contains uh, only uh, one-tenth of uh, human. Uh, of course, uh, these uh, lactoferrin's effect is uh, not only neonate, but also adult function. Lactoferrin containing uh, milk not only in uh, some uh, secreted fruit, especially uh, tear, saliva, or 
pancreatic juice or bile in the body, the neutrophil secreted lactoferrin. So if a body have some infection, neutrophil immigrated to the inflammatory area, so kill the bacteria. So you're interested in developing lactoferrin as a, a relaxant for people. How easy is it to manufacture lactoferrin for human consumption? Yeah, it's a very uh, nice question. Uh, originally, uh, lactoferrin contained uh, milk, especially colostrum, so the baby can get uh, some uh, effects from a mother. So baby can easy to transport these substances into a body. But uh, in adult, uh, nowadays the lactoferrin is uh, produced by the industrial technique to purify. And uh, uh, we usually get uh, some uh, lactoferrin from uh, pharmacy. But uh, powder of lactoferrin is uh, easily destroyed in the stomach enzyme or intestinal enzyme. So the, if a person can drink uh, lactoferrin with uh, powder form, almost uh, 80% lactoferrin destroyed. So it needs to improve the uh, form of lactoferrin, especially a uh, tablet transported to uh, intestine uh, direct. So now we uh, improve the form of lactoferrin to dissolve in intestine. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. And we were just talking to Professor Etsumori Harada from Totoro University in Japan about the physiology of lactoferrin on adults and infants. Coming up, Mr. Adam Goldstein will join us to talk about apple scripting, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks here on 9.7 FM. Well, this year's Macro has presented a lot of excellent new developments, uh, including technologies in OS X, but one of the hidden features that many have not used very much is Apple Scripts. And joining us here is one of the experts, Mr. Adam Goldstein, who will tell us about Apple Script and his new book, Apple Scripts, The Missing Manual. Uh, Mr. Goldstein, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Oh, it's my pleasure. First of all, tell us what exactly is Apple Scripts. Well, AppleScript is a uh, sort of a programming language, but it's not a programming language that deals with semicolons and all the annoying things that most programming languages have. It's a, uh, a language that's meant for everyday Mac users. So people who are maybe graphics professionals or musicians or people who work at a, at a layout firm, 
it's meant to sort of ease the, the tedium of having to do the same tasks every single day. So with AppleScript, you can take your entire workflow, your layout uh, system, your, your music editing system, and you can automate it with a simple language. Are the semantics based on English or some other language? Well, it's, the, it's modeled around English, so if you read AppleScript code, you can usually figure out what it does. Like, you might read a line that says, uh, say, the clipboard, and when you run that, your computer will speak out loud whatever's on the clipboard. That sort of command is what makes people think, oh, AppleScript is like English. And so what are the other typical commands that you would normally use? Well, there are other commands, for example, for uh, activating a program. If you want to bring uh, the finder to the front, you would say, tell application finder to activate, and the finder would come forward. Those sorts of commands, they're, they're pretty much what you'd expect. There aren't any complicated commands that you'd find in C or Java or anything like that. So tell us a little bit about your book. Uh, who is it written for? Well, my book is written for uh, AppleScript beginners, maybe people who don't know any programming before or who've never really dabbled in computer science or anything like that. It's really a book for people who are confident in using their computers but just want to get a little bit more out of them. They want to program a little bit, maybe want to automate their daily routines, just get more out of their Mac, and AppleScript is what lets them do it. So the OS X manual doesn't have any uh, instruction book for this? Well, actually, OS X, the missing manual, uh, has one chapter on AppleScript, but it's sort of a, an overview. And so my book takes people from the, the beginning of uh, AppleScript, you know, not knowing any programming, not knowing any uh, commands. And by the end, people will be confident enough to write their own scripts to automate their own workflows and to uh, control iTunes, iPhoto, um, to control Microsoft Word, and to just add features to programs, for example, um, that weren't there before. Tell us some of the more interesting uh, routines that you've written. Okay, well, one of the um, one of the things that has sort of a special significance today when they announced the uh, the iPod Shuffle, uh, one of the secret features in OS X is that you can have the computer speak text out loud to you. Mm -hmm. But what is even better about it is that you can have your computer speak text into a file so that if you want to read your email, but instead of reading it with your eyes, you want to hear it while you're in your car or on your commute, you can have AppleScript take your email messages, save them into an audio file, and then you can transfer them to your iPod and listen to them whenever you want. So you don't actually have to stand with your laptop open on the train, for example, reading your email. You can just listen to it on your iPod. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, it's a really nice feature, and not too many people have heard of it. And what about the other uh, scripts that have been written uh, over the years? Are there any interesting ones out there that uh, you use regularly? Yeah, there are definitely scripts that people use all the time. You can use, uh, for example, you can use iCal so that uh, there's a script that plays uh, music every morning to wake you up. Uh, that's a common use. You could have um, Microsoft Word. You could make its word count feature even better by adding paragraph counting. Uh, char uh, character counting. If you want to make sure that your, you know, a letter that you're writing isn't too long or too short, you can shrink fonts. You can uh, all sorts of things. In Photoshop, you can uh, record a series of manipulations and then apply them to any picture you have. So that, for example, you could have a, uh, if you have a website and you don't want your pictures to take too long to load, you could just create an Apple script that shrinks your images down and saves them in smaller files so that they don't take up as much space on your website. Cool, so I understand that OS X is based on Unix. Uh, can AppleScript be used to run Unix commands as well? 
Yes, actually, uh, that's one of the newer features. You can uh, you can have a Unix command that you run from an Apple script, so that if there's a uh, the the uptime command, for example, in Unix lets you find out how long your computer's been running. But for a lot of people, going into the terminal program and typing out these cryptic Unix commands is kind of hostile. So if you just have an Apple script that presents the Unix command in a an easier to read format. For a lot of people, that's a lot nicer to use. So in the upcoming version of OS 10, uh, 10.4, there's going to be a new feature called Automator, which is based partially on Apple scripts. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Automator. Uh, some people see it as sort of a replacement for Apple script, but Automator is actually sort of a, a complement to Apple script. It's a uh, it has pre-recorded actions. Like you could have an action for shrinking your pictures, you could have an action for posting pictures to a website, and then when you link them all together, you end up with one big action that does all your little actions in order. AppleScript is sort of similar in that you write commands one after another, and then when you run them, it runs them one at a time, and you can have a big action that's broken down into smaller parts. The difference is that Automator is really limited in that you're pretty much stuck with what Apple's designed already. You can't write your own actions unless you're a real hardcore programmer. With AppleScript, you just look at the uh, the commands that different programs can accept, and so you have a much broader uh, range of commands at your disposal. Excellent. Well, uh, Mr. Goldthings, thanks for being on Berkeley Rocks today. Are there any last words you'd like to add about uh, yourself or your work with AppleScripts? Well, I'd just like people to know AppleScript, a lot of people have the conception that it's a programming language, and they think, oh, programming language, that's, that's hard to learn. I'll just avoid it. But uh, hopefully once people read AppleScript, the missing manual, they'll, they'll think differently and really see it as a, a tool for getting the most out of their computers rather than a, a programming language that makes you think like a programmer. Thanks for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we were just talking to Mr. Adam Goldstein, author of Apple Scripts, The Missing Manual. And the book will be available in February from O'Reilly Press. Uh, you can order it from the website, O'Reilly.com. And it will certainly be available at other fine bookstores, including Amazon.com and Barnes & Nobles. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Dr. Hannibal Lecter joins us to tell us why Mars is so red. Now here's Dr. Lecter with the answer to last week's question of the week. Mm, thank you very much there, Frankie. Ooh, it's good to be back and tasting all the red goodness of your life. The life force of blood that swims so evanescently in the round tables of death. But even in Mars, where all the great redness exists... Why? Why so red? Ooh, well, little one, it's because of the iron content. And that is why it's so... <sniffs> crimson. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Dr. Lecter. And now this week's question of the week. 
It surrounds us, it binds us, and it litters the galaxy. It's styrofoam, but where does it come from? If you know where it comes from or think you know, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but maybe you'll pick up that piece of trash next time. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at groks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Dalla Short. <laughs>